If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. Patrick Henningsen and TNT. All right, folks, welcome. Welcome to the program. Today is Wednesday. This is TNT, today's news talk. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. Thank you for joining us. We have a powerful program, as usual, uh, lined up today. The biggest stories in the world, we'll be covering those and much, much more. Just tune in. Hello to everybody in the TNT chat room. If you're listening or watching this live broadcast, you want to be in the TNT chat community. It's growing. It's huge. We had over 130 people uh, in there yesterday and had a high water mark of 140 uh, earlier in the week. So yeah, the numbers are growing there. That's great to see. The reason is because it's a great place to be. There's so much activity there, so much good research, so many quality links. The quality of the debate in our chat community is rising, ladies and gentlemen. I'm very impressed uh, with the co conversations that we're seeing in there. That's where you want to be, the little red bubble in the lower right-hand corner. If you open the URL, tntradio.live, send you straight to the chat room. Now, we're going to be joined in the first hour by our European correspondent, Freddy Ponton, joining us from France. Uh, if you've seen the news, well, you've heard about the farmers' protests, and we've talked about them with Christian James last week uh, during that segment, but we we're all just waiting to see what the French farmers were going to do, because that's when it gets interesting. And uh, not to be uh, outdone by their German counterparts or the Dutch uh, cohort there just north of uh, the region in France is the French farmers have laid siege to the city of Paris. <laughs> well, not quite, but blocking traffic, basically cutting off the major arteries into the city. So they mean business. And so this is a major domestic issue now in Europe. I feel a crisis in the EU is now not only brewing, it has arrived and things can only get worse if the Italians join in the Spanish and so forth. So we'll talk to Freddy Ponton. He's got his finger on the pulse on that story. Also, the UN uh, Relief and Work agency. Uh, Freddie's got some inside information on this that's going to help say where this is heading. They're trying to basically destroy this UN agency that's providing aid to the people of Gaza. Uh, so chalk another one up in the uh, genocide files. Uh, Israel's not doing itself any favors, neither is the United States. Uh, very brazen move on their part uh, at a time. It's like kicking Gaza when it's down. That's what's happening. I mean, cruelty on a level that we have not seen before. And I think there's gonna be a political price to pay for this. These people are out of control. They don't feel restrained at all by the uh, ICJ interim ruling. And they can go ahead and carry on, but everything is being logged and there will be political consequences. They may not hit immediately, but they will be hitting down the road. We'll talk to Freddie about this and a whole lot more uh, in the first hour. And then we'll also be joined in the second hour by a very special guest, Hala Hania. Uh, she's going to be joining us in the second hour. Uh, she is a Palestinian activist. Um, she is going to talk about the war crimes, the ongoing war crimes, and the humanitarian catastrophe that is unfolding right now that we don't even know the half of it. We haven't even seen the beginning of it. Uh, so we're, we're looking forward to speaking to Hala uh, in the uh, second hour. And we'll also be joined by our uh, roving correspondent, our intrepid correspondent, Basil Valentine, for World Updates uh, as well. Now, I want to hit a big story here before we move on to Europe. 
You see, the United States lost these three soldiers. They claim they lost them in Jordan because of an Iranian attack. Well, it, all these things you can sort of start deconstructing now. As we said previously, uh, more likely these soldiers were killed inside Syria, but the United States can't say that publicly because there's major legal implications, both internationally and also domestically with regards to the soldiers, their families, and so forth. Uh, so they said, oh, they were killed in Jordan. Uh, and that's it. And case closed. But there's statements from Jordanian officials and others that say otherwise, that they were actually in Syria, where the U.S. has no legal basis at all. They're illegally occupying Syria against Syria's own will. Uh, they're occupying key junctures in that country and territory, keeping it strangled while it's under sanctions by the U.S. I mean, just imagine that uh, to add insult to injury. So anyway, uh, the United States said, we're going to respond and we're going to immediately Biden came out. The media were going wild. We're going to hit them back repeatedly with waves and waves of attacks. OK, that may happen at some point, but it hasn't happened yet. Back in the old days, if the United States had somehow been stepped on or someone crossed their red line, uh, the U.S. would immediately launch some kind of a cruise missile attack or something like that. They haven't done that. So this is the, one of the second uh, big sort of high-profile incidents uh, in recent years where the United States have been hit in their bases. The Iranians smashed one of their bases in uh, Iraq in January 2020. You remember that, the missile there that hit, the intermediate-range missile? Uh, in the wake of the U.S. assassination of uh, Iranian uh, Quds Force leader Qasem Soleimani. You remember that? Yeah, Iran hit the U.S. base in Iraq, and the U.S. did not respond. They did not respond. Why? As we said at the time, as we continue to say, because they couldn't. Because the United States is strategically and militarily exposed in the region. It's only a question of time uh, before they're probably going to be driven out. So they're talking tough in the wake of the deaths of these three, three U.S. soldiers and injured 40 others, okay? And who knows how many others have died? We don't know um, when that will be reported and in what form. But uh, all the tough talk afterwards, brace yourselves, Iran, we're gonna come and hit you. And all the war hawks are out in force didn't happen so we get this statement here uh yesterday uh in the press conference uh by major general pat Ryder, holds a pref press briefing on this and here's what he said and this is just telling here's the story ladies and gentlemen what we do know is that iranian-backed militias are responsible for these continued attacks on u.s forces he leaves out the fact that the u.s are there illegally in syria by the way uh and and he continues and what we will respond with it he's saying and we will respond at a time and manner of our choosing ah Oh, so they're not going to be immediately hitting uh, Iran or Iranian-backed forces with waves and waves of attacks. It's not happening. Now, something could happen in the future. But he says, while we do not seek to escalate tensions in the region, we will also take all necessary actions to protect our troops, our facilities, and our interests, which means that they may escalate. So this would be a huge mistake because if they do escalate, then all of those troops, facilities, and interests are going to be targeted by the hundreds of thousands of Iraqi people's mobilization units. Their numbers are upwards of 200,000, okay? These are all the different factions 
under the Iraqi Ministry of Defense that were assembled in order to fight ISIS when they appeared in 2014. So the PMUs stayed, stayed under the Iraqi defense umbrella. They drove out ISIS, and now they are moving in to these various U.S. positions because the Iraqis want the U.S. out, the Syrians want the U.S. out, the U.S. are not welcome in either Iraq or Syria. And they say they're there to fight ISIS. And if you believe that, I have a bridge to sell you. Quite, quite plain and simple, to fight ISIS or to maintain the gains that we've had against fighting ISIS. Let me give you a newsflash. ISIS cannot survive in any areas held by the Syrian government or the Iraqi government. The only areas where ISIS lingers is in the areas where the United States are. That should tell you everything you need to know. And I don't think it, 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 it really warrants any more analysis than this. So all the rest, ladies and gentlemen, is noise and background music. Uh, for what looks like a, a 1975 Saigon moment, okay? Standard operating procedures, helicopter on the roof, evacuate. That is what's going to happen because this is what happens throughout history. The only people who don't realize this, unfortunately, apparently, are the people in Washington and their trusted allies. They haven't quite worked this out yet. The penny quite hasn't quite dropped, but it will, and it is. Unfortunately, let's just hope that the United States doesn't feel the need to start World War III uh, in order to somehow salvage or protect their waning position in the Middle East. These are late-stage empire chronic symptoms, ladies and gentlemen. Let's take a break with TNT, today's news talk, and let's get Freddie Ponton, our European correspondent, connected. We've got a couple of big stories here. France, Algeria. Uh, as well, UN Security Council and the UN Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA scandal, and also much, much more on the other side. Stay there. TNT's Jeremy Nell. Nice comment here from Rebecca. She says the youngest people um, I work with are a bit more mature, but their interactions with the public is stifled. And she's referring to the excessive use of cell phones and social media and how it's making them so antisocial also. The business is open six days a week. One of his staff members formally requested that they shouldn't, you know, that they could they be given permission not to have to work on Wednesdays so that they could help at the dog shelter. Now, as you know, I'm a dog lover. I have hunting dogs. I've got dogs coming out of my ears, my Malinois. And this dog, this Malinois is bright even by Malinois standards. She can do crossword puzzles, is lying under my desk at the moment, feeling sorry for herself because she's just come on heat for the first time and she's completely bewildered. She doesn't know why she's bleeding to death. It's not about whether it's a good or a bad thing to work at animal shelters. That's a delightful thing. It's a noble thing to do. But who in their right minds goes to their boss and says, would you mind, I'd rather not work on Wednesdays if it's okay, because I've got other priorities in a, in a town down the road. Jeremy now on today's News Talk. TNT. When you can point me to an industry, to a platform that reaches 250 million people a month, virtually nine out of 10 Americans, that's real, that's substantive, that's important. And that reach and that touch point and that daily reinforcement 
it's an amazing place to be able to communicate messages. That's massive. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. My character, Shazam, knows all about growing up in a family full of teenage superheroes. They're bold. Where's everyone going? To fight crime. Okay. Adventurous. Shazam! There's never a dull moment. And no matter what happens, they'll always have your back. All they need is a place to grow and be themselves. And the best part is, you don't have to be a superhero to adopt a teen. Learn more about adopting a teen from foster care. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Unbiased information. Honest and forthright. News without the misinformation. It doesn't matter what side you're from. What matters is what you say, the truthfulness behind it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back to TNT, today's news talk. I'm Patrick Kenningson, your host. Thank you for rejoining us here on Wednesday. We're still in the first hour of this live broadcast, and I want to welcome onto the program uh, our European correspondent, Freddie Ponton, on the line right now. And there's a couple of things that we want to talk about, not just uh, European-wise, but internationally. But let's start with what's happening in France right now. Freddie, thank you for joining us this week. Well, it's a pleasure being here, Patrick. Thank you very much to have me on the show. So, so we see the scenes. Well, we've seen the scenes, Freddie, from Germany. Uh, we've seen the Dutch before that. We see farmers all around Europe, not just Europe, Freddie, around the world, in fact, but mainly in Europe. Let's focus on Europe. Uh, and everybody's just kind of sitting back waiting for what the French are going to do, because when it comes to strikes, protests and manifestations, uh, the French tend to lead the way uh, in terms of the impact uh, in Europe. And it looks like the French farmers are mobilizing on this issue just give us a a little bit of an insight a look what 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 is things what are things like on the ground there well it's a very interesting patrick a very fast-paced moving uh, development uh, from the uh, farmers in france i mean it's really basically benefits thing from the energy that we saw coming out of Germany. So it's, I think it's the timing is, is perfect. And we're going to see, obviously, a bit later on the reason behind this. But uh, right now, I, I think we, we saw yesterday, there was a lot of posts on social media about the French farmers basically coming from different uh, regions of France, moving towards Paris. And uh, uh, it was described by some of the press as a siege on Paris. That's how big it mm. was. And uh, we can clearly see that uh, the uh, Farmers' Confederations, uh, which is the third agricultural union, is now really calling for a major, major mobilizations amongst the uh, uh, the farmers uh, across the country. So they want them to block the purchasing centers uh, in the countries, you know, all the logistic platforms for large-scale distributions, the wholesale market like Rangis, you know, the second world biggest food wholesales uh, international market uh, in the southern suburb of Paris. So a lot of things is happening. We can see farmers that have moved their trucks by hundreds and hundreds getting onto the highway. We have height, uh, eight, sorry, motorways that are basically completely blocked today. And uh, I checked again this morning and it was still the case where they've literally moved towards this uh, major uh, international food market in order to really uh, take a stand. And it looks like it's going to be for the long run. So it's a major mobilization and it's happening also all across 
the nation. So it's uh, really the numbers are absolutely staggering. Uh, we took in about 12,000 farmers already that have moved uh, towards Paris, 6,000 tractors, uh, 6,000 tractors on the road. I can tell you, you will notice it and not a lot of people will move. But there are many other plans. Some of them are obviously more talked on the sidelines. So I don't want to reveal their plans, <laughs> of course. But uh, on the other side, I think what, there's still a, a lot of things to, to gather from the social media, a lot of posts about how they're doing it, how they're approaching now. A few miles, uh, already tractors have already arrived at Rangis, this international uh, food uh, wholesale market. And they're going to try basically to uh, to put uh, everything to a halt. So it's uh, it's done uh, so far very peacefully. We haven't seen any uh, report from the police talking about clashes or nothing physical. There's been a couple of arrests. The police has used a certain law uh, in terms of uh, uh, obstructing the, 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 the public ways and, and passage in order to uh, basically remove some of the tractors, which seems to, to have taken positions that are, uh, literally are blocking the way for, for trucks to exit the market. So it's, it's coming up. It's basically in the making as we speak. Uh, and I think uh, they didn't come just for a couple of days. I think this is a, a long run and they want to be heard this time and they're going to try to have it their way for sure. So that's Fred, uh, becoming Freddy. Freddie, yeah. just uh, this is different tactics, isn't it? Because in the past, with these types of de demonstrations and protests, there would be disruption, block the roads, disrupt traffic, get the government's attention. But this is more targeted. They're going for the distribution lines, the supply chain that feeds the hypermarkets in France, which could cause major uproar. Um, so is this is this sort of new tactics, more precise tactics? Yeah, definitely. This is extremely well coordinated on a nation base, on a national basis. You know, so nationwide there is a plan. Clearly, we can see that from the territorial intelligence services, for example, they reported that they've identified already nearly 120 blockages across the nation. Uh, these are points that are very strategic across the country. And as I said, this is a deep-rooted farmers movement that is going to fight very hard because they are fighting for their survival. So yes, it's not a really a change of tactics. It's just simply bigger. It's more determined. And I think it's more for the long run as well. I think they're not going to leave until they get what they want. Uh, and so what, and what are their demands? Um, what, what are the demands precisely? Like, are they? Uh, is there a specific list of demands or are, they, are these old demands that are being reintroduced uh, with this crisis, what what are the uh, the main uh, points? Well, the main points, of course, every uh, union has their own revendication, if you will. They're all basically asking uh, certain, you know, uh, conditions as far as the uh, the farmers' conditions because it has deteriorated over the years. So every union has a kind of list of uh, uh, of complaints and things that they want to see. But I think there are major points that really need to be addressed, and we can see that the overall complaint has to do with the European farm uh, to fork strategy. It has to do with the French, uh, basically the European Green Deal, which is there's certainly a major component as part of the, the discontent uh, amongst the uh, mobilized French farmers. And uh, this is all related basically to the, uh, U, uh, the what they call the EU environmental roadmaps, Patrick. And within this uh, EU environmental roadmaps, uh, we can see a lot of components within, uh, especially that are related to uh, 
to to um, measures and conditions that need to be obeyed, um, you know, is attacking directly the level of productions uh, that these um, these agriculture and these farmers are able to put out. Uh, so it's affecting directly the production up to 15% for some of them, even more. Uh, and it's becoming basically a, a, a struggle for, for the survival because clearly the bottom line and what they have in common with the German is that uh, they can no longer make a living out of their job. And this is really a, a last chance for them to stand and say, well, if you want farmers and if you want food to come, and we have great privilege in France, we're able to produce our own food. So it's really unbelievable that we would put, be put in a conditions whereby for environmental issues, we'll end up having no more farmings or, you know, all the small farmers disappearing. Uh, so that the conditions uh, that they are under at the moment due to the EU regulation and due to this uh, European Green Deal making it very difficult for them to do end meat at this moment in time. Wow. So basically the government is uh, trying to impose kind of, you know, great reset style, uh, UN sustainable development goals style uh, restrictions that basically take away the profit margin. Because a lot of people don't realize, Freddie, that farming has a very, very thin profit margin. You have to make that very thin profit margin to make it worth uh, doing the business every year. And they rely on that. It's a very delicate balance, isn't it, agriculture? You've got to hit it just right. Yeah. And so the yeah. government's atta attacking that. They're attacking that that thin margin. Well, the, it is, but again, this is all a, a major problem of sovereignty because we are really dependent on the uh, European, uh, basically directives, uh, and this European, uh, basically, a green deal has components in it that basically forces the farmers to comply if they still want to retain their license or their ability to uh, to export and to to be a, a players in the game uh, so as you said rightly so you know um, and perhaps even the eu farm to fork strategy which we can talk about is really a a, a major component of that because it, it is a micro if you will, of the Great Reset and the Build Back Better, they went after the systems. You know, since the Great Reset was announced, they went after the health system. They went after the defense system. They're attacking all the system to rebuild them, to the Build Back Better, rebuild them, but rebuild them for themselves. You know, this is the, the great public-private gangstership that is putting together basically a plan so that all uh, the small farmers, all the small players disappear only for basically the elite and this big corporation to be able to access the land and be and be the, the major supplier for the food on a global basis. So there has a, a lot of lack within this strategy, especially in the EU farm for folk strategy. Uh, we see that there's three major points, Patrick, which I think clearly is putting a lot of pressure on the farmers. The first one be, being about reducing the overall use of chemical pesticide, and they want to reduce that by 50%, and also the use of hazardous pesticide by 50% uh, 50 by 2030. So what it means basically is that uh, if you don't have seed that are appropriate to grow certain crops, uh, and if you're going to stop using this pesticide, basically your yield is going to be, you know, two or even three times less than it normally is. And you get 8 billion people you need to feed on the planet. So if you apply that to Europe and to, to a certain extent to, on, on a global level, uh, you're going to miss half of the food productions, you know, in no time. Uh, and when that happens, 
it's very important to understand is that you're going to have no other choice but to look at other means basically to cultivate. So you're going to go and start to look for other cultivable lands like rainforest or you're going to attack, you know, uh, 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 grasslands and so on. So it's going to have a anyway and an impact on the biodiversity so a lot of things is not really making sense at this moment and then the second point patrick is the they they want to reduce the fertilizer use by at least 20 percent by 2030 that's part of the uh, uh the the plan if you will so they hope to achieve this by reducing what they call nutrient losses and it means that basically reducing what farmers need to apply to actually being able to produce and to be profitable. So every single, basically, norms, every single decisions and point that is outlined in this, uh, in this uh, in Green Deal uh, and this, uh, uh, in this strategy is basically affecting the bottom line, especially of small farmers. And then the last point, there's a third point about increasing land devoted to organic organic, sorry, farming. I think it's up to 25% uh, in, in total, Patrick. And uh, uh, that's going to be done uh, all across Europe by 2030. Uh, so yet again, this is going to uh, uh, affect a lot, you know, the, the yields uh, across, the, across the board. You know, you're going to lose at least, as I say, a third of the productions by going, if you're going to go for 25% of organic farming, you need to compensate that somewhere. So where, how are you going to compensate that? Well, you're going to have to look for more cultivable land. And that's the problem. We saw that in Brazil, you know, with the soya beans, uh, uh, you know, they're basically taking uh, uh, lands from the rainforest so that they can increase basically uh, the output. And that's extremely dangerous because uh, we're not able to do that in Europe, but Brazil, you know, under certain circumstances will be able to do that. And then not they are not subjected to the same rules that we are subjected in Europe. And yet they're going to compete directly with our farmers in Europe. So very dangerous because we're talking about a, a livelihood of thousands and thousands of farmers that are at risk here, Patrick. So, so basically what you're saying here, Freddie, is that um, they want to restrict uh, through all these various new programs, uh, green programs, Build Back Better, et cetera, restrict production in Europe, um, move more towards organic, reduce pesticides, but that's going to re reduce the total food production. That's going to leave an opening in the market, which needs to be filled. So they're going to end up getting that from Brazil or maybe an African country where there's no regulation, um, where the environmental damage is even more uh, in those areas. Uh, in order to fill the production gap um, in Europe. So they're basically offshoring the same problem that they're trying to solve in Europe, isn't it? Well, yeah, they, they put on some draconian measures, you know, upon the farmers uh, across Europe. And that's why you got so many countries that are infuriated because they, they have to comply. There's no choice. There's no other way. Yeah. They have to comply. And this particular compliance, you know, is basically effective, the competitiveness on the global market. So uh, I'll give you a straight example. You get a lot of eggs coming out of Ukraine. Ukraine is not even in Europe, yet they've been given a special authorization to sell their class A eggs in France, but they are not CE eggs, which is basically confirmed Europe. You know, they are not basically uh, European 
materials. They are not subjected to European norms, if you will. They're not certified, yet they are able to trade and to sell the, the eggs in, in France and other countries. So it's very, very unfair for these farmers, which then they have to invest in their, uh, in their um, in streamlining their production, if you will, to be compliant, where on the other side of Ukraine, now there's this, uh, you know, billionaires out of Ukraine that's massive chicken farms and eggs productions. They're not, they're not subjected to any of, of this control, this check and anything like that. Same goes for the meat market. We get basically six, 55, 60% of the meat that comes outside of Europe. So therefore, they are not subjected to uh, these uh, compliance issues and these certifications issue. Uh, we're going to have at the moment a major, major issue that's happening right now as we speak, which is the discussion over the EU uh, Mercosur uh, deal in between basically the European Union and a, a trading bloc from South America with Brazil and so on. So Macron, the Minister of Economy in France, uh, Bruno Le Maire, came out and said, we cannot do that because our breeders are just simply going to collapse if we let that happen. So they're trying to fight for it. We're not saying they're in bad faith. But what we are saying is that all the decisions are made in EU. And even Brazil is saying, we don't care what France is saying. We're not dealing with France. We're dealing with the European Union. We're dealing with the European Commission. And that deal is going to be deal, uh, be done and be sealed with van der Leyen seal, if you will, with the van der Leyen approval, which is not very uh, comfortable news, you know. So this is the problem mm. we have at the moment, is that everything is centralized, centralized in Europe. All these guidelines, all these uh, bureaucratic burdens is coming onto the French farmers and it's not coming out of our government. It's coming out of our government applying basically the European uh, rules, the, the European recipe, if you will, uh, to meet the, uh, the, the, the climate, uh, you know, and the Paris the core targets, you know, uh, it, so, it's just too much. So, so Freddie, I, I think we see where the, where the game is here. Uh, <laughs> the, whole the whole Ukrainian project was designed as a backstop to this situation that we're seeing now, isn't it? A nice little offshore agricultural, uh, unregulated, unregulated, corrupt sort of market there, uh, right outside of Europe, very quick delivery time, substandard products. You saw about the Ukrainian grain. You saw countries rejecting it because it had some sort of banned, <laughs> banned chemical in it or something. Uh, yet they're dumping it onto markets and then uh, attacking Polish farmers and all these other farmers that are trying to do it the the right way or follow regulations and stuff's coming in from ukraine uh via brussels brussels has let it in they turned it into a schengen country <laughs> basically so so but they didn't get all the land that they hoped because russia moved pretty quick didn't they in 2022 so this is interesting freddie when you you start to mix this uh, story with some geopolitics isn't it yeah, you have to, because it, it's all interconnected, if you will. If you look at basically the farmers in Europe, they all have to basically uh, uh, align themselves with what is known as the common agricultural policy, which is the cap. Now, they spend a lot of money to that, and that money goes towards pensions for farmers. And it goes, uh, you know, Europe is allocating a lot of money to support farmers. Now, if you get Ukraine, that is not a European country, but you're basically uh, entertaining the prospect of integrations as a competitor, which is not a real competitor because it's not European. So it's an outsider playing on the European market. And 
we have no idea how much they are going to contribute as well to these particular common agriculture policies. So they have massive potential. They are not subjected to any real, uh, you know, pressures or bureaucratic burdens. And yet we're not sure even with the war uh, for the last past two years, whether they're going to be able to afford to actually pay for because it's quite expensive you know to 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 pay your fees towards the common agricultural policies so what's going to be the contribution of ukraine nobody knows so it's very worrying for the farmers zero. They, they look at it <laughs> zero my view on it is going to be a zero is going to be a, a green pass you know <laughs> yeah it's nothing uh the, the economy in ukraine freddie their, their currency it's literally uh it's down in sort of you know uh poor african country level in terms of value so like there's nothing going on there in terms of contributions it's not going to happen it's literally a, a, an offshore a cheap offshore destination to get goods and then flood the european market and all the big uh you know retailers and stuff and and middlemen can mark up on it and so people are making tons of money off of this uh and the aid and all of this Ukraine grain program and all that people are just creepy. Even in France, they were making money out of it. So of it, it, it was a big scandal. So it, this is interesting. This stuff yeah. coming out of Brussels and their support for the Ukrainian war. I think it's very good for business for some people in Brussels. And it goes further, further, further than that. If you really want to go deeper and trying to analyze as well these moves, these moves were also a response to the BRICS. If you look at the Mercosur uh, agreements that the European Union is currently uh, trying to negotiate, there's been really an ongoing back and forth between Brazil, which kind of a, a little bit lead the discussions uh, between these uh, South American trade blocs. But look at Brazil as part of the BRICS. So I believe that the European Union is trying to close up on deal with the South American bloc because they know that if they don't, they're going to leave a vacuum that is going to be exploited by the BRICS with Brazil first, but also Russia, China is going to want to have their own trade exchange deals with this particular region of the world. So you can look at Ukraine for different reasons. Uh, they want Ukraine to be part of this, uh, you know, of this exchange and this trade and this free trade agreements and get Ukraine as close as possible within the, the European market. But on the other side of the Atlantic and in South America, these are for completely different reasons. But the bottom line is that uh, this is so unacceptable for the French breeders. They won't be able to survive it. I mean, you get quality meat from Brazil that is not subjected basically to any traceabilities. They are not really being negotiated some clear guideline as far as, you know, health and safety, all that kind of things that basically increase uh, basically your overheads as a producer or as a breeder. Well, we don't know really. And then, of course, if you compare that to uh, uh, the human resources and uh, the cost of producing in Brazil or in Bolivia or Venezuela, it's not the same as, you know, paying the bills of electricity that has doubled four times uh, in not even a year. So uh, we are not even talking about competition here. It's a complete piss sack. Freddy Ponton, investigative journalist, researcher from France. We're talking about the French farmers' protests laying siege to Paris, looking for their demands to be met, saving their industry. It is an absolute scandal. It goes all the way up to the Brussels level. We're going to continue the conversation on some of these bigger stories. We're going to move to the UN Security Council after the break. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We'll be back after these messages. When a crisis hits close to home, and across the globe, nonprofits are on the front lines, ready to serve. Keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. 
the demand for charitable services has skyrocketed, and nonprofits are rising to meet the needs. Healing, nurturing, rescuing, honoring, protecting, caring, inspiring. The work of philanthropic organizations of all sizes, across all missions, has never been more important. And it's donors and volunteers like you who make all this possible. Thank you. Together, we change the world. The Nonprofit Alliance. Last week, Brandon met a girl on a dating app. One day after work, he finally found the courage to ask her out. No answer. He started to panic. Was he being too pushy? Maybe it was too... Hey, sorry I didn't respond. I was driving. I would love to go on a date. How does tonight sound? Brandon tried to play it cool, but inside he knew. A girl so smart, so responsible. She must be a keeper. Patrick Henningsen talks on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back. It is Wednesday. We're broadcasting live and direct for two hours. Thank you guys for joining us. Appreciate your listenership, your viewership as well. If you're watching us on the listening platforms, the various audio streams, whether at TNT, at the mothership, tntradio.live, or on the various streams, uh, and if you're watching us as well on YouTube or some of the other streams, we're streaming on X, Twitter as well, reposted that live stream at at 21 wire. So you can see that too. Uh, if you're listening or watching us, please join the TNT chat room. It is an unbelievable community, a cauldron of activity going on there during the show. So I'm telling you, you're missing out if you're not in the TNT chat room. It's a little red bubble uh, in the lower right-hand corner uh, when you open up the web browser, tntradio.live. Join in there. It's a massive community. It's growing by the week. Uh, want to see you guys in there. I'm sure you'll enjoy the material that's on exchange uh, in that forum as well. Now, back to our guest right now, uh, Freddie Ponton, investigative journalist, researcher out of France. Uh, Freddie, we were talking about about the uh, farmers' protests and that's spreading across Europe. It's hit France. It's going to get interesting. We'll see what happens. We'll follow the story too uh, intermittently as we progress uh, through the next days and weeks. It's not going away, as you said. But internationally, at the UN Security Council level, it seems that some of these uh, countries that are considered to be part of the, quote, global south, um, mainly African countries, and also countries even in the Maghreb, uh, North Africa, Algeria, very pro-Palestinian in their orientation politically, traditionally. And of course, they have a very interesting history, don't they, Algeria, with their formal, uh, former colonial masters, uh, France. Um, they're taking a pretty hard stance uh, at the UN Security Council. Explain to us what's happening here. Well, they, they, they were very, very fast. Algeria literally uh, on the back of the ICJ uh, ruling last Friday, 
literally, the, I think uh, hours later, they were already asking for an emergency meeting uh, at the United Nations Security Council. And that idea was really to uh, move towards enforcing uh, the ICJ uh, order with its uh, provisional measures. So we've all followed that. We've covered it extensively. But really, in, in few words, it's really about allowing basically the uh, the uh, the entry of aid uh, on an emergency basis into the Gaza Strip because the people are simply dying, starvation, disease, you name it. I mean, everything, uh, the Palestinians have been on, under attack now for three months. And of course, the uh, uh, destructions of infrastructures, hospital, anything that is capable of sustaining life has been pretty much destroyed. Uh, so it's very hard for a population of over 2.3 million people to be able to function normally. And then, of course, the, the weather is not helping with the rain, the cold, and uh, the, the displacements of population in areas where there should be shelters, where sh it should be feeling safe, security, food. None of that has been basically prepared. And these people are basically in the mud, in the water, in the rain, and trying to simply see whether the, Europe, the, the international community is going to help them. So they obviously have uh, some hope of uh, something happening and this uh, ICG ruling and this court order has been enforced. But uh, I think the Palestinians know too well, you know, and they very doubtful about the United Nations being able to do anything to stop Israel, uh, which is currently accused of a plausible uh, genocide in, in Gaza. So the Algerians have moved very quickly. Uh, they've not really yet indicated whether they will uh, present a draft, uh, a Security Council resolution today, because they're actually meeting this afternoon as we spoke. They've been for the last past three hours, literally in private chambers at the United Nations Security Council in New York. But are, now they're coming out live. So it's actually live at the moment. People can see that on YouTube. Uh, they are talking about really the implementation of the ICJ court order. So I've not, I've not been able to obviously find out what they said, because I'm with you right now, but I'll jump on it after the show. And then uh, I think what's clearly also interesting is very, very quickly, the South African Justice Minister, Rolo Lamola, very quickly said United Nations Security Council needs to outline the measures that he's planning to take to enforce the ruling of the International Court. So he wants basically the UNSC to take its responsibility to enforce it and to explain what measures they are going to take to stop basically this plausible genocide, which means that are stopping the bombing, stopping basically the attack on hospital. We saw recently, you know, some hospital being under siege, people dying because they couldn't get oxygen. Uh, you can see basically uh, uh, religious uh, Zionist movements outside of the uh, uh, the Misna border, you know, people that are literally at the Egyptian uh, Egyptian uh, uh, Gaza border, blocking uh, the trucks from and, and injuring basically the entry of trucks into the Gaza Strip. So a lot of things is going on that is completely, you know, associated with war crimes or collective punishment that has been uh, proposed uh, during the court uh, pleas as well. So clearly uh, we have a problem here. And the ICG 
uh, uh, has done his job. Now it's for the United Nations Security Council to do his, and we're going to be able to see this afternoon what kind of recommendation is going to come out. Now we know the World Food Program, the head of humanitarian aid, all these guys are going to push forward for it because they've been there. Many of them have been back and forth in Gaza and this sort of level of destructions, and more importantly, what looks like a genocide. So there are basically pushing. But at the end of the day, the United Nations is an institution. The United Nations Security Council has veto powers through their permanent members, including the US, France, UK. And we're going to have a problem with that because if the US is not going to be supporting basically the enforcement of these provisional measures, which imply a ceasefire, that's a very important thing also to put on the table, Patrick. You know, it implies you don't need to talk. A lot of people were disappointed, even, of course, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs from South Africa. She said it. She said, I would have loved to see uh, uh, ceasefires within the court order, but it's not there. But it doesn't matter because to imply any aspect of the provisional measures, you're going to need a ceasefire. How are you going to get trucks into the Gaza Strip, you know, without well, actually well, uh, stopping the bombing? Well, yeah, here's the thing, you know, on the, the people were like, oh, why didn't they uh, put a ceasefire uh, thing in there? This is an unprecedented situation because normally the genocide convention is to prevent a genocide. Um, but now it's already happened. And there's a humanitarian crisis that's already way, way past the point of no return. So the UN, uh, or the United Nations World Court, the International Courts of Justice, they said that um, legally they can't prevent Israel or, or say that Israel can't defend itself um, if there's missile attacks or whatever. So that's why they left that part out. So they're putting all the onus on Israel uh, to stop genocidal activities, you know, uh, ergo Article 2 in the Genocide Convention. As you said, Freddie, it's implied. A ceasefire is yeah. implied in the ruling. But but here's the thing. The, the only way that ceasefire can happen is that Israel and whatever other parties, counterparties, be it Hamas, be it the United States or whatever, they have to come themselves and make the agreement. The countries still have to do it. And the parties that are involved still have to have that agreement. And whether it's honored or not, it's like, is anyone's guess, because Israel certainly doesn't often honor any of its agreements. Um, so, but that's the risk you take. This is this is the way the international system is. Um, but. Yeah, Look, there's, there's, a there's a technicality, uh, Patrick, as well, with regards to genocide, you know, and ceasefire. Ceasefire is against a state, you know, it's two states, you know, having war mm -hmm. with each other. And basically, you, you call for ceasefire. And if nobody wants to respect it, you're going to deploy the UN troops, you know, to make sure the mm -hmm. ceasefire is respected. This is not the case. This is the yes. problem. It's, it's different. It's it's, yes, exactly. It's emphasizing on the fact that this is an occupying force, basically attacking, you know, uh, the people that they are, the very same people they're responsible for, the occupies. So technically, it's a little bit, you know, as you said, uh, uh, unusual uh, to bring that to, to the forefront of the United Nations Security Council. But uh, again, I think also I was actually giving a photo early on and I was thinking this is a great opportunity for the United States to get out of this kind of liability mm. 
that uh, Israel has created for themselves. Because with this particular ruling, there is legal liability for anyone that is aiding and abating Israel in what is plausibly looking like a genocide. So if there is a, a moment for the United States to exit, they can use this language and the verbiage and say, well, mm. in the uh, current court order, there's no word of ceasefire. And our agreement with Israel is that we will veto any ceasefire. But because the verbiage does not mention any ceasefire from a technical point of view, the U.S. could be having this uh, plausibility of deny and say to Israel, well, I don't have to block anything here because there is no request for ceasefire. I'm just, you know, kind of, you know, going ahead of myself here a little you're bit. But no, you're absolutely spot thing. on, Freddie. You're absolutely spot on. This is the opportunity for the U.S. to back out on a technicality uh, and be seen to be doing the right thing during the election okay. year. And also they could abstain as well. Uh, so could Britain. And so if it passes, and here's how it plays out, Freddie, you know how the politics is going to play out. Let's say it passes, uh, then the U.S. is saying, well, we, you know, we, we, we support Israel's right to defend itself, but um, we, uh, we, we don't want to um, uh, take away their ability to um, uh, do whatever their self-defense, but then uh, we do want to see a peaceful resolution, so we abstained. And, and then it passes, Freddie. So the U.S. and Britain can say, we've done the right thing. We didn't vote against it. And then Israel will just continue to do what they've been doing because they're already taking the hit anyway on this. So it's like nothing changes, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it has to be done. You know, we, you have to look at the draft uh, at the Security Council, how they're going to draft basically these measures and what basically the United Nations Security Council is prepared to agree upon on a consensus basis. Uh, so there's really two aspects. On one part is that is the proposal brought forward by Algeria is acceptable, you know, uh, and is is there enough traction, enough consensus amongst the, the permanent members to avoid any kind of veto? Maybe abstaining is a possibility because there's a me message in abstention as well. But what's very important here is that also the UNSC knows that they better uh, deal with it right now because if they don't, well, there is also an option that could happen, and that is basically for South Africa to invoke the Uniting for Peace General Assembly Resolution 377, Section 5. And that particular section is very important, especially the Section A of this resolution, because it states, and I'm going to read it out to you, but it states that... Uh, the Security Council, because of lack of unanimity of the permanent members, fails to exercise its primary responsibility for the maintenance of international peace and security. The General Assembly shall seize itself on the matter and procedural and substantive steps can be suggested by the GA, by the General Assembly. And that's basically an emergency session. And then from that emergency session, they can use different instruments including the deployment of forces. So there's a lot of things that can still happen, but I don't think the United States and the UK would want to go that far because there's a public relation here. And I think we can see that whether it was at the ICG, whether the way Israel is trying to control the narrative, 
which they obviously put it on and they've put it lost in doing that. Uh, but uh, they're not winning this. And I think this is very important because the U.S. has clearly stated that they didn't want any escalations of war in the region. And they wanted, obviously, Israel to comply with international law, which means that <laughs> you cannot say comply with international law and not support basically a draft resolution. Uh, so we're going to see now within the next few hours what's going to happen and uh, uh, which way uh, this, uh, you know, the, the, the UNSC is, is going to move. Very interesting how this is going to, we're going to learn a lot, Freddie, aren't we, uh, in the next couple so, of yeah. days as to mm. as to which direction this is going. Uh, so very important. And also you're thinking ahead, showing us the steps uh, that are coming next, uh, what the options are next. So uh, the, the story does not finish, whether whatever the vote is in the UN Security Council, the story is not over uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Now, uh, in terms of violations of the Genocide Convention, one of them is uh, denying aid going into Gaza, okay? And this is exactly what's happening. The U.S. and the Israel have spearheaded a campaign to discredit, defund, and destroy uh, the U.N. Uh, Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA, uh, which provides and delivers humanitarian aid into Gaza every day. Well, it did before October uh, 7th, uh, but it doesn't now. Um, so, uh, Freddie, uh, on this story, give us uh, the latest uh, as far as you can see. Well, I mean, my, my personal view on this, we, we saw the, uh, the Wall Street Journal article. I think there's been so much uh, social media about it. I'm sure everybody will know what I'm, what I'm referring to. But uh, really, the, the claim of the connections between uh, this UN agency that is really the main core, the lifeline for the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, and uh, having basically using this and saying that they, there is a direct connection between UNRWA staff and Octo October 7 attack in Israel, uh, is really a big claim. And of course, it needs to be supported by evidence. And what was really interesting in, with this article is actually the author of the article. The person that wrote it is a lady called Kerry Kellerlin. And uh, a, a lot of guys, and investigative journalists and normal citizen journalists have already very clearly, you know, a couple of search on Google, you can find out that she's uh, basically a former IDF soldier. Uh, mm -hmm. She's uh, basically worked for a Palestinian-based UN agency. Uh, 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 she, uh, sorry, I'm saying that she's not working for a UN agency. She's worked for the Times of Israel, and she works for an Australian Jewish news agency. She was pretty kind of uh, in line with the, the Zionist philosophy, if you will. And it's very hard for her to have access to some you know, paper like the Wall Street Journal. And more importantly, uh, quick research will establish also a link with a lady called uh, uh, Lieutenant Aliza Landis. Lieutenant uh, uh, Landis is an interesting person because she was basically uh, with the IDF from the very beginning, I think during the Operation Castlet in 2008, and she came up with the idea to set up a unit, a unit, a desk at the IDF to promote social media, basically, and to help the IDF to create a presence on social media because she understood that, you know, within 10 years or 20 years, social media will be extremely uh, important and play, of course, an important role in asymmetric warfare. So she knew that the online 
social media, the narrative needed to be controlled. So she's literally the propagandist in chief of the IDF for social media. And you have pictures on the internet and all over the social media saying that these two girls, uh, Carrie uh, Kelleline and the Lieutenant Aliza Landis from the IDFs are best pals. So uh, obviously a lot of people are getting really uh, kind of uh, cautious about taking these uh, allegations of UNRWA uh, being the staff members being associated with the October 7 attack from the Hamas. And uh, the timing as well is very suspicious, Patrick, because we saw the ICG quarter coming out on Friday, literally three days later, you got a major article, you know, about basically uh, attacking the United Nations. That's what it is. It's a direct attack on the United Nations and telling them that you go against us, we're going to come after you. And that's exactly what Israel has done here. So it's a major piece of of propaganda. And I think it's a shame for the Wall Street Journal to allow this kind of piece to come out. Oh, yeah, they 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 gave it the green light. They let them right in. We yeah. see this so often, Freddie, these sort of planted stories uh, written by people that have absolute conflicts of interest on this hardly objective. You look at the backgrounds here. Great research uh, by the people exposing this uh, as well. It doesn't take much, Freddie. You just have to uh, pop up their LinkedIn uh, resume or do a few Google searches. I mean, uh, the Wall Street doesn't surprise me. The Wall Street Journal has been backing uh, this war from the very beginning uh totally loyal that's so it's a murdoch publication i think they're under the uh rupert murdoch umbrella uh unfortunately so uh good work great journalism uh uncovering some of these uh issues freddie we really appreciate uh your analysis this week on tnt today's news talk keep an eye on all these stories folks which freddie is highlighting because they're they're developing and we'll continue to follow those thank you freddie ponton there he goes, ladies and gentlemen. Look, uh, we're coming to come up to the top of the hour here. Top of the hour news headlines right at you. And then after the break, we're going to connect with Hala Hanina. She is from Palestine. She is a human rights uh, advocate. We're going to talk to her about the war crimes, what's going on in Gaza. Unbelievable situation. And then Basil Valentine with world updates after that. So there's a lot coming up. Stay right there. <laughs> 